This is The Straight Dope, episode 70. I am going to cover a couple things that came out of a subcoms email that I send to subscribers. We have conversations, and the conversation was similar to the last episode. So this is like a Q&A, but an extension of the last episode. The conversation that came out of it was training, training-related, having trainers and using 22s to potentially find a sweet spot for training. And it was just a thought exercise that I was using because I don't use trainers. I just shoot the rifle that I want to shoot. And if it's a different caliber, great, but I don't think of using one to train for another. So I want to continue that. And I'm going to talk about some of the things that came back through users kind of anonymously. I uh, printed out the emails that I got back because it was more of a conversation and that conversation you don't get to see, but, but people provide feedback to questions and, and then I email them specifically back and forth. And, uh, it avoids some of the problems that threads and chats and groups where some people are louder than others. And a lot of times the people that are louder uh, don't have anything positive to contribute or they have ideas, but they're kind of missing the point. This allows me to filter it and then get back the thoughts that I like to stay focused on the path that I'm on and the theme that I'm trying to promote on the podcast here. So let's go back to talking about shooting the 22 because I think some of the message was lost a little bit. First of all, like, I don't care what you do with your 22. Like, I think if you're having fun with it, that's awesome. So that's not the conversation. Like, if you, if you go out and plink with your 22 or you shoot a 17 HMR or you shoot your 223, 308-30-06, like, man, we are all having fun out there. And that's pretty much the take-home message. Like, if you're having fun, that's totally awesome. And it has nothing to do with any of the stuff that I say because this isn't a podcast about trying to go out and have the most fun. It's really a podcast about if we want to get better. And if we want to improve, this is how I kind of think about the elements of shooting in a way that allows you to um, create hierarchies of training value, prioritize certain elements and push towards measuring things so that you know, if you're actually training at it, you're going to get better. And so, you know, you might go out and, and play basketball or soccer or golf or something like that with your friends. And, and aside from that, you don't want to necessarily go to the PGA or the NBA. And that's totally fine. A lot of people, most people probably probably do that, but some people really do want to get better and they really do want to try to improve to the point where it's worth focusing on. So that's the conversation that I'm having. And some of the feedback, uh, it, it kind of centered around, well, this is what I do. And, I, and so reading through the, the questions, I came to a few more realizations that I wanted to verbalize and put it out there. And to do that, I'm going to re-emphasize one of the points that I kind of ended up making the short story really long, ended up getting to on the last podcast. And that was to make use of the 22 for centerfire, I think about calling wind to a mile an hour. And so if you can break down your wind calls to the mile an hour level, then you've got a framework that is pretty natural for most of us. Those of you in Europe and the rest of the world, you're going to have to do meters per second or kilometers per hour. I don't even know how you guys do wind. But thinking about mile per hour in the United States isn't an unusual thing. So if I say, you know, the, the wind is six miles an hour and you have a six mile an hour gun and you're shooting at 600 yards, you know that you're going to hold six tenths onto, and you're hopefully going to hit the dead center of the target. And so thinking in terms of miles per hour allows us to conceptualize our wind calls in a framework that's usable. And because... I think, and try to translate everything back to the mile an hour. That's where I was coming from. So making a wind call to the mile an hour makes sense to me. No one on earth is making the wind call, their wind calls to the mile an hour. You could go back to the F-class people, and you can talk about how they're mapping the wind and spending a day or more with wind coaches, and they put flags all over the place, and they're getting their wind calls a little bit more refined. But that, I, I wouldn't really call that a wind call because 
those people aren't going to hike up into the mountains and make that same level of wind call. But nonetheless, I want to be able to say that I think a good aspirational wind call level would be to the mile an hour, even though nobody out there is doing it. So breaking it down to the mile an hour makes sense. Sub mile an hour, it's, it's ludicrous because people aren't doing it to one mile an hour. Why would you want to do it to a third of a mile an hour, right? So to be able to map that, I wanted the sweet spot where it actually was uh, translatable to the mile an hour and um, linked up with the ballistics of the 22. And when I crunched some numbers, <clears throat> I realized that somewhere in that 80 to 85 yard zone, you could break down the mile an hour drift on a lot of these bullets to a tenth on your reticle, right? A tenth of a mil. So that tends to be a kind of normal way for shooters to describe how wind's going and then tense and so on and so on and so forth. Now, you might not do that, but for me, conceptually, in, in terms of that framework, if I wanted to measure my ability to read the wind to a mile an hour or two miles an hour or whatever, like I would want to do it at 80 to 85 yards, and I would shoot that on paper, and I would be doing my wind calls. <clears throat> That's pretty close to the shooter, so making those wind calls is going to be kind of a baby steps thing because when you're shooting at 800 yards, there could be a lot going on between you and that target and the bullet's going up higher in the air. And so you've got the different wind levels. Those, um, and so there's a lot more going on in a long distance shot than an 85 yard shot. But nonetheless, in my mind and in the framework that I think about shooting and measuring things in miles per hour, I think that there is a good uh, training value in shooting your 22 at 85 yards on paper. The reason I want to do it on paper is that I want to be able to measure the dispersion of the bullets in my wind calls. And uh, that was just my thought, right? I'm not saying that that's the way to do it. I haven't actually even done it. So I can't even speak credibly about whether that's totally effective. I was just using the math and the physics to say, if I was going to do it, this is where I would do it. And I don't think training with a 22 is going to be all that helpful for a high performing center fire shooter in the first place. But if I was going to do it, that's how I would approach it. And the reason I would pick a 22 over a 223 or something is because the affordability curve is just so much more in favor of the 22. And the fundamentals that I want to train are going to be exposed at that distance. And I would also do the craft drill at 85 yards. If you're shooting small, <clears throat> I would move it back. And so one of the questions here came out, you know, why, why would you um, you know, why wouldn't you shoot the craft drill so that like you could shoot it at a distance where you had a one hole group? And, and my answer to that is that the, there's no fixed distance for the craft drill. It just turns out that a lot of people zero their rifles at 100 yards. So it seemed like a convenient distance to be able to do the shooting. And when people shoot groups and they show off their shooting ability and they're, you know, tight everything, it's not uncommon for that to be at 100 yards. Why is it done at 100 yards? Beats the shit out of me. It's just what we do, right? It's a, a, a generalized kind of... Uh, you know, and it's an accepted distance. It could be a hundred meters. It could be people, you could just have a target in your backyard and that's just what you do. But it isn't unusual for people to shoot paper at a hundred yards. And they also like to, to talk about how great their rifle shoot at a hundred yards. And so when I started to do the experiments on paper at a hundred yards, because I could confirm my zero, because I could confirm a lot of stuff. And because there was paper stands at a hundred yards and not at other distances, that's kind of why 100 yards came out. Now with center fire, it's 100 yards because that's just the way it goes. If if there was paper set up at 105 yards or 110 yards, then it may have developed there. But I wanted a system that most people, when they went to their range, could have a standardized distance that they do it at. Is that important? No, not really. I mean, it, it's convenient that when you check your zero, 
it's at the same distance. So you could have zero on your turret because it's good to be able to have a good solid zero. What is important is that you can measure a difference in point of aim, point of impact when you change positions. That's all. So if it stays one hole and you go through everything and it stays one hole, how do you know where your strengths and weakness are? Like you literally don't, right? So it needs to be at a distance where the where you're kind of producing visible, measurable, uh, fundamental errors that then you could work to bring them back towards zero. So with the 22, I kind of went back and forth because I don't shoot 22, so I don't know. Some people say they zero at 25 yards, so that means that they must have paper stands at 25 yards or something like that. So try it at 25 yards, try it at 50, try it at 100. I had tried it at 100. And if you're consistently literally printing a one-hole group at 50 yards and you do a craft drill and it is a one-hole group, you're literally getting nothing. You know, it's like saying that, um, I mean, it, I don't even know, it like boggles my mind that you would even think that if you can make a one-hole group, that doesn't mean you don't have fundamental problems. It means you're not shooting at a distance where that linear angle gets exposed to the point where it's opening up. I mean, I'm sure that it, it's probably measurable, but the holes are too close together to measure that linear angle or dispersion. And you can get that as you reach out with distance because that one-hole group at 50, it might be, um, easy to measure at a hundred. And so I would tell people with their 22, go back until you start to see a difference between your zero group or, you know, your fundamental baseline capability of the system and your fundamental flaws. And, and it doesn't need to be standardized. It's nice to standardize it for the craft stuff, but for you as a training tool, like it has to be at a distance where it exposes your weaknesses, but not so much that you're missing the paper. So, um, you want it to open up a little bit and then you say, okay, it's left. Does it, like if it's super important to you that it stays really small, then you want it to be a little closer because that's going to mask it, but you're lying to yourself, right? If you, if you push it back and it makes it extra large, it's, you're at least able to measure. I've got this dispersion from my zero and the weapons capability. And this is area of improvement for me. So hopefully that makes sense in terms of the distance. Standardizing is cool. If we put it on a website and we start to say, this is how an average shooter shoots. But for you as a training goal, and a training tool, it doesn't matter unless you can't measure it. And if you can't measure it, then how do you know if you're getting better? It's like, it's like saying like you're on a diet, but you're not doing anything to figure out if you're actually losing weight or getting more fit. Okay. Well, I don't know how that would work for you because if there's no measure, it doesn't make sense to me. Right. Uh, there's a lot of different ways to measure how a diet or a training plan would be effective. And it doesn't always mean weight. And it doesn't always mean belt size. And it doesn't always mean VO2 max or one rep max strength. It means different things for different people. But if you're not measuring any of that stuff, then you really have no idea what's happening, right? And you are probably in good company on the internet, but maybe not on this podcast. So let's look. Um, the other one says, um, if the craft with a heavy center fire is approximately 100 yards in training, why would a heavy 22 at 50 yards not be appropriate for similar training? And I think I answered that very um, multiple times, but I think there's a relationship between the recoil impulse and the mass. And so if, if, if somebody out there that's an engineering nerd wanted to, set, wanted to show the difference between a center fire, center fire recoil and the mass of the rifle, now that doesn't have all the, the things necessary because it has to be the mass that your fundamentals are capable of also dealing with. And so this is going to be personal and it's going to be different for every shooter, which goes down to another question that they said, well, but then light and heavy would be different for every shooter. And that's absolutely correct. 
everyone's fundamentals are at a different level. But if you have shitty fundamentals, you're going to shoot better with a heavier rifle. And if you have better fundamentals, you're going to shoot better with a lighter and lighter rifle. Not better, but you're going to be able to maintain a performance level with lighter and lighter rifle systems. But if you don't have good fundamentals, as you decrease weight in your rifle system, you will start to have your groups open up faster than somebody with good fundamentals. And and I... Um, I mean, certainly that's my opinion, but I would be willing to say that the best shooters out there consistent, can probably perform consistently better than other shooters with lighter and lighter systems because to get better, you have to have better fundamentals and you have to be uh, more knowledgeable about the whole system as a whole. And um, that would be exposed and exacerbated with lighter and lighter rifle systems. So just like going back with distance or in with distance to kind of make your ego feel better if you wanted a smaller group or you wanted to actually expose your weaknesses... If you want to expose your weakness with any rifle, make it lighter. There's going to be a, a sweet spot where the group isn't so ridiculously big that it's almost not even measurable or you would miss targets down the road. I think there's a good sweet spot with all of that that scales to about double your craft number or double your baseline because you're, you don't want it so big that it just makes you feel bad or if you're shooting at non-paper targets that you're going to miss all the time. I think it's really important to have a zone that's measurable, but also you're excited to see it get back towards that baseline or the system capability. So the 22 doesn't have much recoil in the first place, but that relationship of mass of the system to the recoil of the 22 is wildly different than a center fire. And that's why I think that um, that there's a relationship of recoil to mass and then fundamentals. So it's like a triangulated measurement, and it would be your fundamentals, the mass of the system, and the recoil of the rifle. And if you could triangulate those, you would probably see that there is a sweet spot. And my guess is that it favors shitty fundamentals with a centerfire when your rifle is over 18 pounds. Under 18 pounds, it asks more of the shooter, and that's why you don't see as many sub-18-pound rifles in high-end competition. It starts to, to make it more difficult to see some of those things. But the better shooters, nonetheless, I would wager that they could perform at a high level with something like a 16-pound rifle instead of a 20-pound rifle or 18-pound rifle. I think they could probably perform down to a point where then it would start to expose and compromise their points at a, at a competition. But if they were going to train with it, I would say train with a lighter rifle when you're working fundamentals and when you're working things like seeing bullet splash and, and, and all that other stuff, then it, then it helps to have a heavier rifle because you can see that stuff and train it down. But I think there's probably a zone. And if you're not in that zone in particular, then you're not going to be gaining the benefits, you know, and it is a little bit like exercise, right? So if you're in a zone two, like you hear about zone two for cardio and for aerobic workouts and for a lot of benefits for health for humans, like it helps to have a lot of zone two cardio, but zone two cardio isn't the same for you and me. And it's not the same between me and a marathon runner because if I go for a run in zone two, it's it's basically like, you know, they say like 70% of your max heart rate, but you don't know what your max heart rate is in reality because, um, you know, those tests you want to not just do your age minus whatever. But, and then the other, the other one is like you could actually like have a conversation, like somebody would be breathing, but you could tell that they were exercising, but they could still talk to you while you're doing it. That's probably in the zone two stuff. But a marathon runner could probably do that at 10 or 11 miles per hour, right? Five, like six minute miles. Um, and they're still in zone two for a competitive marathon runner or a cyclist. They're probably, you know, going, you know, 25 miles an hour and still in zone two. Whereas, you know, some of you, you're in zone two if you walk up a flight of steps and then you, you exceed it. So that zone two fluctuates based on you, just like rifle fundamentals fluctuate based on 
you. And I think that a lot of people are, are, are kind of, they overestimate their ability, but then they don't go out and actually, you know, it's like saying that you're training, but you don't have any measurements to show whether you're actually getting better or not. It's easy to hide behind stuff, but when you expose your weaknesses, that provides you an opportunity to train. Um, I think that you're, it's giving you an opportunity to train stuff. <clears throat> so the, another question went towards wind variance. Like, why wouldn't you just shoot out, you know, like the wind call's a wind call and so on and so forth. Okay, so, he, so here's the deal. Like, and this is going to be hard for most people to hear, but most of you are really not good at wind calling, right? Most of you are really just average wind callers. And an average wind caller is probably reading the wind to four or five miles an hour. Great. Four or five miles an hour with your 22 um, is, is like you know, if they're one mile an hour guns, but by the time they get to, um, hundred yards, they're like half mile an hour guns. And so, you know, you're, you're talking about needing to have targets that are so large, you know, like three MOA or larger to hit them in, in a pretty close distance on a random wind call, like at 150 yards, you're going to need a three MOA or more plate for your very first shot of the day in, in kind of conditions where the wind might actually fluctuate by multiple miles per hour. And, and so, yeah, you're right. A wind call is a wind call, but no one is reading the wind at sub mile an hour level. And so shooting at a distance with a 22 for wind call training, you, in order to hit it first round at a distance, you need to have a sub mile an hour wind call. And nobody's doing that. Nobody's coming close. Nobody's coming close to one mile an hour. So if you're reading the wind at four miles an hour, chances are you're going to miss a target at distance as your first shot. And I would, I guess this is what I would say. An average to large size target is two MOA. So I want you to put up a four-inch piece of steel at 200 yards. And your first round of the day, no other training, no other wind call information, I want you to log every single day your first round wind call and where your impact was at 200 yards on a four-inch plate. And I want to hear the frequency of first round impact, right? And do that, do that for a month or two every day, you know, so that you have like 50 logged first round shots on a four inch plate at 200 yards. And I just want you to write down hit or miss, right? And then get back to me. So that's the challenge to you guys. Put out a four inch plate, 200 yards with your 22, just walk out, take one shot and you're done for the day or come back six hours later or something like that. But, but it has to be under completely different conditions. If you could do it in the morning at noon and at night, great. But, but it has to be separated by hours in different conditions and hit or miss orange plate at 200 yards. And I want to uh, also know like what were, the, what were the wind characteristics where you're at? Of course you could use your Kestrel, you could use your fucking windmill. I don't care what you do for a wind other than nobody could shoot. Nobody could give you a correction. You just log hits or misses, right? My guess is it's not going to be 90% hit rates like you see in centerfire matches. And that leads me to this last little rant. This is going to be kind of a shorter one, but I think that we need to define, or I need to define a little bit more clearly what I consider like, you know, training goals and how people are measuring whether they're growing. Because a lot of people out there, they think they're really awesome, but when push comes to shove, they either avoid competitions like crazy, or they just go into a state of denial as to, you know, it had to be something else. It wasn't me. And, and so here's, here's like, I'm going to go back and I got some feedback on, you know, what, what do I think deployment times for elite shooters versus, and some of the elite shooters out there got back to me like, man, those are tough times. It's like, yeah, they're tough times. It's elite. Like what, like this isn't, otherwise our grandmas would be winning the PRS and, and they're not right. So, um, in fact, I don't think anybody's grandma has ever won a PRS match. So 
and, and you might be able to get back to me, but it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of effort. Being elite is something that people want, but they don't want to put in the work. And so I think that I'm going to define a couple things, right? First, the baseline. Most people, in my opinion, are reading the wind to four to five miles an hour. And I think that most people are making a mistake in how they define making wind calls. I think that most people out there are not actually making wind calls and they're performing pretty good. And that's because to win at most matches, you don't really have to be good at wind at all. Everybody wants to be a good wind caller, but being a good wind caller isn't really putting people at the top of the game. And let me get let me get to that a little bit. And I came to this conclusion last night and this morning reading some of these um, reading these emails because people were were sending me, uh, for example, like I wouldn't substitute a heavy rifle and a training tool for competing at uh, you know NRL or sniper field matches. But these people don't actually go to NRL or sniper field matches. So you you see a lot of comments and stuff and when you when you when you do research on the people that are that are sending you this feedback and giving you these comments they're, they're not actually performing at a level that can that can credibly say this does or doesn't work and so I, I and I try to avoid that in my my personal life and I try to avoid that even on the podcast like I stick my neck out and I say man I don't shoot 22s at all this is where I would start but you know if you haven't won a match or got a trophy at like a high end national match and you're you're telling everybody how to train um like something, something is, is, is lost a little bit there, right? Looking at high-end shooters and crunching the numbers and math and thinking about my performance, I've, I've done well at matches uh, enough to be able to say like, what won, you know, what, what did I do right to win this match? And most of the time it wasn't making good win calls, okay? So I think that we misguide ourselves thinking, oh my God, it's wind, oh my God, it's wind, oh my God, it's wind, when that's not the level that people are shooting at yet. I think that we're going to get to a point where wind is going to be the deciding factor between who wins a match and who doesn't. But I don't think that for 95% of the matches out there, one win call made a difference between first and second place. Now, I might hear back from Morgan King or Chad Heckler or somebody out there that listens to this and and hear that, that like, hey, actually, you know, I think that, that whatever it did... I think what wins matches is the ability to make a correction. You can get 90% at a match and do it by blowing your first shot. And if you can learn from that blown first shot, you could probably get a 90%, a 9 out of 10. And if you get a 90%, you're going to do well at most matches, right? There's some matches on the East Coast that have higher than 90% hit percentage, but out West and in most of the country, if you can maintain a 90% hit average, it's very good, right? When I started shooting, people would say 70%, could win a match. And 70% probably still could win a match out West, but I'm going to just make a blanket statement on the, and I'm going to start to generalize a little bit from what I've seen. But if you have good fundamentals and are really pretty miserable at wind and you can make okay corrections, but you're not super good, you're probably going to be shooting around the 70% hit rate, not 70% of the winner, 70% total. Right, So if you have a good small craft number, and the craft number is smaller than the targets that you're shooting at, which a lot of people, they just don't, and so you're going to miss anyway. And I think that going to competitions, if, if you can't consistently shoot under two inches in a, as a bracket, I think you're wasting money going to a competition because there's things that you need to learn that you won't learn at competition as a prerequisite to going to competition. So it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just kind of make up hypothetical brackets based on skill sets that you could use to set a training plan and you could use as a guide to what should I go do this or should I go do that? But here's what I think. 
if you can't produce a two-inch bracket, you're probably wasting money going to competition because you need to work on bringing your two-inch bracket or bringing your bracket under two inches. Two inches is probably the threshold because you're going to be shooting at targets that are sometimes smaller than your ability. And so then it's just a statistical thing. And you don't want it to be a statistical thing because um, if you do, like you're better off taking that 2000 bucks and going to Vegas because there's actually some return that you could get. And at a shooting match, you don't get shit return other than a low hit percentage. So bring your shooter bracket down. Then be able to move and build and break at a rate such that you could build and break positions in the time hack of the stage. So let's say there is a five position, 10 shot stage that's 120 seconds. So you need to be able to build a position and break two shots per position in 120 seconds. Um, if your splits don't fall into that window, then you're not going to be taking some shots. If they do fall into that window, you don't need to be faster necessarily. I think that, that those are other things. So I would say criteria-wise, you know, you want to have a bracket that's under two inches. You want to have build and break times that match the times that you'll be tested at. So at a hunter match, if it's four minutes, like, okay, fine. You know, there's other skill sets that you're going to need to be able to perform well. But let's say at a PRS match, if it's five positions in two minutes and you build and break, you know, you build a shot, break a shot, and then take a follow-up shot, you need to be able to build those five positions in that that window right and for a lot of people that's no big deal if it's 90 seconds you have to be a little bit faster but the very high end i've seen 10 positions in 90 seconds right so those 10 positions one shot 90 seconds you're talking about building break times in nine seconds but that's at the very high end and that's very competitive but if you can build and break shots in 15 seconds you're probably pretty good 20 seconds you know, maybe depends on the competition and the stage itself. But if you can't do that, then you won't get to shoot. And then why are you going to competition if you don't get a chance to shoot? Okay. So then you're probably going to be in that 60 to 70% hit ratio because when you shoot and you see a miss and you correct, you're going to start to get some hits, but you're going to be missing one or two shots per stage because of something, right? And, and, and some of that might be the initial win call, but then your follow-up might be incorrect. So you might blow another shot with a follow-up and then you're going to make a shot and then you're going to hit it. But 50%, below 50%, something's wrong, right? Above 50%, that's good. And up to 70%, it's kind of average, right? You can do the things that shooters do at a level that's pretty average and you can get your shots off and you can have fun and you can learn. 70 to 80, those people are starting to learn a, how to shoot a tighter group so that they have a little bit more wiggle budget and they're getting control over their point of aim, point of impact such that that two-inch group maybe comes down closer to an inch. So now you're getting control of your fundamentals. So you're bringing that two-inch group to one inch, which opens up space on the target for error, which is going to happen. And when you see a miss, you're going to be more likely to be able to make a good correction rather than making a correction that puts you off the opposite side of the plate. Or it continues to be off the other side of the plate because your bracket was so big that you can't refine it down to a specific point. And I'm, I'm going to leave it at that, but hopefully that makes sense. If your bracket is too big and you, make, and you make a bad shot, it could be so big that it's way off right or left and that correction even if you make a whole plate correction, it could still be off the right side of the plate. And oftentimes, if the bracket is big and you make a correction, like you hear people tell you to do, like correct a plate left or right or correct three quarters of a plate left or right, your bracket is big enough that you're going to put it off the other side of the target 
in terms of probability. And so if you shoot a big bracket, those kinds of corrections, they aren't, they're not good corrections to follow, right? In order to make a good correction, you have to have a good group size. So I think that the group size is fundamental to everything else. I wouldn't work on corrections in wind until your group size is below two inches, ideally below an inch and a half. And the better that that gets from multiple positions, the more likely you're going to benefit from the higher level skills. So making a correction that, or, and, and, and being able to be consistent across positions is going to take you from 70 to 80%. Now, if your hit percentage at a match is between 80 and 90%, you're probably getting very good at making a correction, but not necessarily an initial wind call. You have an idea of the wind, and that idea might be pretty close, but if you're shooting one inch at a, at a, at a uh, 1.5 MOA target, you really have to be within two and a half miles an hour to be able to hit the plate anywhere. And most of you listening to this cannot do that, right? It, it doesn't matter. What matters is that you see it and you make the correction onto the plate and you're able to carry that and run. And that's the difference between the 80% and the 90% shooters as far as I'm concerned. If somebody scores between an 80 and 90% shooter, they have control of their shooting consistency. They have con control of their positional consistency. And now they're starting to be able to see a correction applied correctly onto the plate and they're getting between 80 and 90% of their impacts on plates. 80 to 90% is likely going to get you in the top 15 at a match if there's good shooters there. If there's not good shooters, you still want to be in the 80 to 90% hit percentage bracket at a match because that means that you're making good corrections and good follow-up shots that are getting onto those plates. But you can miss all of your first rounds and get a 90% of a match if it's 10, 10 shot stage. And you can get 92% of a match if, if you're at, at a, a 12 round stage, if you missed every single first round that you took. And you would likely win the match if those were your only misses. And so those first rounds are what I would consider your win call ability. And after that, I would consider everything else your follow-up ability. Even when it comes to changing the direction and target that you're shooting at, it's not a wind call necessarily if you transition to another target because you got your wind data from that first shot. How you carry that over is another skill set, and I think that still applies into the 80 to 90% bracket. But the 90-plus bracket, now you're starting to see people who are able and capable of making good wind calls. But how many shooters out there have made uh, over 90% hit rate probability at a match, at a national match with targets that were under two MOA on average, right? There aren't that many people that are out there, but those are the ones that are able to make good shots, right? Those are the ones that are making really good wind calls. And they're the ones that could focus on learning to read the wind better. But the majority of you listeners and, and myself included, we're still in the follow-up zone and I'm learning to make those, I'm, I, you know, I, I break the 90% average and then I dip below it to like 88. And then I break it and then I, and it's because I travel around and I go to places where you're making a lot of first round win calls and, and, and it's hard, right? It's not easy, but that's the idea, right? We're trying to raise our level to get to a point where we're testing skills and those skills, I think they get mislabeled. Follow-up shots are very important. Follow-up shots at this level of the game will win you matches, but they're not win calls. And you need to have control of first your shooting ability, 
and then your positional ability, and then your ability to see and know what you need to do when you miss the target, because a lot of us are going to miss a target, and then we have to apply that correction. Being able to do that will get you to the 90% hit rate. But if you go to a match and you don't hit 90%, talking about and blaming the win probably isn't blaming the right thing, and it's not focusing on the right thing. What you need to focus on is first paper, then positional, and then follow-up shots, making corrections and understanding the angular carryover from one target to another. But for the most part, if you can make a miss and correct it onto the plate, you're going to have a very high hit percentage, and that high hit percentage is likely going to carry over to a high placement in the match. The point where high-end schools right now, they're almost exclusively teaching people to make follow-up shots because they know if they're not necessarily teaching you to be a great shooter, they're teaching you to be a great competitor. And right now, great competitors make good follow-up shots. They can read hits on plates and they can read misses off the plate and apply them to making the rest of the shots count. Right now, the the high-end game is a game of follow-up shots and corrections, right? And that's not wind reading, but it will be when enough people get to the point where they can make high-end follow-up shots and corrections. So this kind of took a detour, but I think that's very important for you to understand because when you train the hierarchy of skills, you have to have the base first because you literally will not learn anything if you start at the top to try to focus on wind. If you shoot three inches, wind is irrelevant for the most part. Once you get under two, now you're starting to have the need for positional consistency. And then when that positional consistency gets under two, then you have the need for follow-up shots. And when the follow-up shots are consistently under two, then we can start talking about wind, assuming that we're shooting at two MOA plates, right? Making a wind call, if you can make your four to five mile an hour wind call, we're talking about, you know, a half a mil variance on top of your shot group, right? That, that opens it up quite a bit, right? At opening up the thing that you're shooting at needs to be a half a mil larger than your target. It makes sense to have a small group and to bring down your wind calling ability lower and lower, but there's no way in hell that anybody is reading sub one mile an hour wind calls. What they're doing is they're making a correction and holding that correction. And that's what people are doing when they're shooting 22s at distance. They're not making a good wind call to the quarter mile an hour value. They're making a good correction and then they're shooting a lot before things change, which is a cool skill to have. It's not only is it a cool skill to have, it is what I think is the skill right now that's winning the high-end matches or matches across the country. So it's not that it's not valuable. It absolutely is. But that's where people are being tested right now. And it's not necessarily wind calling. Most people that give me feedback, it seems to be the case that they're picking apart things that they don't have an understanding of and trying to do things that they haven't yet satisfied the base of. And that's why when you look at their match scores, they're in the 50th percentile or they're at such small matches that there's no measurable way to do that. Or, you know, uh, you know, and if it's about fun, that's a completely different conversation. But if it's about training, we need to be honest with ourselves and we need to scale that training in a way where you can actually stack blocks on top of each other and they don't lose their balance like Jenga. You know, I think a lot of us want to make a super, super tall, really rickety structure because we want to get to wind as fast as possible, but we would be best benefited from building a strong base and building up that pyramid in a logical and systematic way such that as you got up to the higher levels, you really benefited from the skill sets that you were training. Otherwise, you're just wasting money 
and you're going to be reinforced by staying in that hit percentage bracket that you're in. And the only difference in placement that matches, it's not your hit percentage necessarily, it's who doesn't come to the match that allowed you to somehow be higher up in the ranking, right? And that's not a good measure of your skill. So make sure that when we measure and when we assess, we're doing it in the right way. And I think if you're going to use a 22 to train for center fire, you want that 22 to be light and you want it to be at a distance where you're measuring the same carryover metrics. But that's just my opinion. If you want to go out and have fun, then it doesn't matter what you use and just go have fun because it is fun. And I do that same thing. Like I go out and have fun and I just screw around and it has nothing to do with anything. And it makes me laugh, have a good time. But when it comes time to focus down on training, make sure that you're going bottom up in that pyramid and skills that stack logically not just scatterbrain because you saw it on YouTube or Instagram or some good shooter said to do this or that or this or that. Because if all that worked, the people that they teach would be performing better and we would see them getting more trophies. We would see them raising the bar on the average hit percentage and the average performance level of people. And, and, and for the most part, mid-pack is still the mid-pack no matter what they do. And you could change that. Right? By, by saying, screw the system and screw the stuff that everybody's always been doing. Let's bypass it, raise our skill level, and start performing at a higher level. If you think like that and you actually do it and you put in the actual work and not just you know, chat about it, um, you will see results. You will, 100% guaranteed. And the people that I see just coming out of mid-pack, going straight to the top, they're doing exactly that. They're saying, you know, screw it. I'm going to start over and I'm going to build this base logically and I'm going to set my performance parameters towards that top end of the spectrum. And they get there and they get there fast, right? It's not like, oh, I've been shooting 10 years and I'm finally, no. They go from impact to like, you know, within six months, seven months to getting a trophy because it's very focused. But that takes a hell of a lot of work, right? Just like fitness and a diet takes a hell of a lot of work. Like, man, I'm going to lose weight. That's harder, than, that's harder than it sounds, right? If you actually put in the work. But you put in the work, You'll see the results. I guarantee it. All right. So uh, until next time, this was just a Q&A uh, kind of clarification. But I wanted to do that because I do think that there's a logical progression. And you want to make sure that you're focusing on the right metrics in the right parameters in the right way. And if you jump ahead and you don't have the requisite skill sets to hold up that skill set that you're actually working on, just like Jenga, it's going to lose its balance and the whole structure is going to collapse.